Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us to gather together and worship, to learn more of your glorious truths, uh, and to fellowship with you and with one another. We pray that you would use this portion uh, of our study to further our growth in our love for you and obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing in our study of the confession, and we come to the third from the last chapter. I was about to say penultimate, and then I thought, no, it's not either. But anyway, third to the last chapter, chapter 31, uh, of synods and councils. And so here's the historic situation. The Roman Catholic Church develops its theology of church hierarchy over the years. So the very first popes were not as staunch that they were the representative of Jesus Christ on earth as the later popes were. It was a thing that developed uh, over, over the years. And so when the Reformation comes around, so, so you've got the a number of folks who have realized that the church has stopped teaching the basic gospel, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We're made right with God only by the work of Jesus Christ uh, on the cross. And so when the a group of folks realized that the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was not in harmony with what Scripture pretty plainly teaches, they first tried to reform the church. Well, they get kicked out of the church, so the very next thing they've got to do is establish what is the proper government of the church. And so you've actually got Three different understandings. One is Episcopal, which is what the Roman Catholics, and it comes from to oversee, epi, over, scopos, to see, episcopos, an overseer. And so in the Episcopal structure, you're going to have a series of overseers, and it just depends on who's at the top. In the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is at the top. Uh, in the Anglican Church, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, actually, the, the monarch of England is at the top, but the authority is typically delegated to uh, the Archbishops of Canterbury and York. Um, in the Methodist Church, typically you have a, a council uh, that is kind of at the, at the top, but in all of these, you've got these bishops and archbishops who are responsible for overseeing the people below them. And we've got a lot of really good brothers. Uh, J.C. Ryle is, is an example. If you're familiar with J.C. Ryle, he's a, a pastor, theologian from the 1800s, uh, and, and, Excellent, uh, but but he's Anglican, or was Anglican. He's Presbyterian now. Uh, <laughs> you also have Congregationalist. 
And the congregationalist position is that each congregation is its own authority. Uh, and so there is no authority over the congregation from outside that congregation, that Jesus Christ has established each congregation to be its own church, to be its own congregation. Uh, and so an example of some, some great leaders uh, in this, John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan is was a congregationalist, uh, and if you read the Pilgrim's Progress, you, you get a real sense of, especially at the Castle Beautiful, or the Palace Beautiful, uh, the, the, the method that the Puritans went through, the Congregationalist Puritans, for examining for church membership uh, is, is there at the Palace Beautiful. So you've got John Bunyan as, a, as one of the representatives of this Congregational movement, and then you've got another movement. <laughs> and I want to... The, the reason I'm going into this kind of background a little bit is because I want you to get a sense of how we have this problem. We, we've got this problem that's developed with the Roman Catholic Church, and now we're all kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the question is, okay, what is the proper ordering of the church? How should the church be governed? Are we simply individual congregations? Is the problem with the Roman Catholic Church that we just had a bad person or a bad group of people at the top, and in fact, if we just got a good church with the right people at the top, then that would be the the correct way to go. How do we do this? So one of the other principles that the Reformers uh, really camped on, central principle for them, is the principle of sola scriptura, our only authority is the Word of God. And so, we've got to look at the Word of God and use our heads to try to understand some of these basic questions. So, can someone read for me 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 13? I'm sorry, verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 14. Great passage, but I think you got the wrong book. <laughs> or the wrong chapter in the right book. I got my numbers Until I come, devote yourself to the public 
So, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is Paul giving a charge to this young protege, to to Timothy. And he's giving him specifically a ministerial charge. He's telling him that he's to devote himself to preaching. Uh, He's, you know, do not uh, not allow anybody to despise you because of your youth. These are the things that you are to do as a minister. And he says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So, what is this council of elders? It seems to be that this is in some way a governing body. This is a group of people who have the authority to tell Timothy to go and become a minister. The council of elders is who has given this gift to Timothy by the laying on of hands. Now there's another place we run into the council of elders, and that's in Acts chapter 15. And so, if you will turn to Acts chapter 15, because it's a long passage, you won't read the whole thing, but I think it would be helpful for you to look at it, because there's just a couple of significant points that I want to make from this. The first is the story behind Acts chapter 15 is Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah that has been promised in the Old Testament. He has come. He is the seed of David. He is the one who is now crucified, dead, buried, raised again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at God's right hand. And so this is very much a Jewish movement that Jesus tells his disciples to take to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth. So as this Jewish movement is moving into places like Syria, it's moving into places like modern-day Turkey, if you are going to become a Christian, you're identifying yourself not with Apollo, not with Jupiter, you're identifying yourself with the Jewish religion in some way. Of course, now there's controversy inside the Jewish religion, uh, because most of the Jewish leaders reject the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, And so you've got this inner controversy going on within the Jewish religion, but you also have an external controversy, and that is if you wanted to follow after the Jewish faith, in the time that the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, what do you have to do? If you're an Egyptian, if you're an Egyptian and you want to become identified with the Jewish faith, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep all of the law. You have to, you have to follow after the, the commands of, of God 
in regards to the ceremonial law, which, and, and so circumcision becomes the uh, kind of label by which we understand all of that. So in the New Testament, you've got this same issue. The, G- Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is not a new religion. This is exactly what all of Scripture has been pointing us to. Jesus is now the fulfillment. And so for a new Gentile Christian to come and join in, the practice for the last over a thousand years has been, if you join this faith, if you join this group of believers, then you have to follow the ceremonial law. You have to be circumcised. And so that's the controversy. It, I, I hope that you can see that it's a legitimate controversy. Uh, it, it's a very real problem in the New Testament church. What is the relationship of the Gentile believer to the Jewish community? And so that's how we open in Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's completely understandable. This is how it's always been up until this point. Now, Paul and Barnabas have some conflict uh, over this. And and they, they debate these guys. And so they go, and you see it in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so I think that that is a significant it's a significant statement. The apostles and the elders. Uh, now when we're talking about church government, why would I say that this is a significant statement? Because if it was Episcopal, if we were just looking for one person, who did the Roman Catholic Church say is the first pope? So then, if Episcopal government is the correct form of government, what are Paul and Barnabas going to do? They're going to go ask Peter. Peter, you're the vicar of Christ. You're the representative of Christ. Peter, what do we do? But you don't see that in here. Simultaneously, if every church is completely independent, then a theological debate like this is going to need to be resolved for the church in Syria. It's going to need to be resolved for the church in in uh, Corinth. It's going to be, need to be resolved for the church in Rome. It's going to need to be resolved for the church in Jerusalem. But that's not the pattern. We've got this theological controversy, and it's a real controversy. What is the relationship of the New Testament church to the Old Testament? That's really the controversy. (laughs) What is the relationship of a New Testament believer to the Old Testament? Should he come under the Old Testament ceremonial law? Or is this something the same? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, yet different. There's a 
putting new wine into old wineskins uh, type of thing. You can't, you can't put the gospel under the, the, the framework of the old covenant. And so the people that are asked to weigh in on this, the people that are asked to make the decisions, are not the people at the top. They're not the apostles. But also, it's something that the entire church comes together to do. They recognize that all of us have to be on the same page on this. All of us have to get this issue sorted because it's a real issue. It's a central issue. And so by going to the apostles and elders, we see that we're not following the practice of Episcopalianism and we're not following the practice of Congregationalism. And then when the uh, decision, when the decision is announced, uh, and so we go, we go all the way down to verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, wait a minute, that's not the verse, uh, Yes, yes, I'm sorry, it is. <laughs> uh, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So, they make a point of basing the authority of their letter. They make a point of addressing their letter not from the apostles, but from the apostles and the elders. And they make a point of saying we are connected to the churches in Cilicia and, and these other towns. So this word here, this word that is translated in our Bibles as elders is a word which is presbuteros, and it means an old man. Uh, it, if you have failing eyesight as you get older, your ophthalmologist will say you have presbyopia. Uh, your your eye, you've got old eyes, <laughs> and and so. The elders, the idea of elders develops out of trying to understand how we can be most faithful to the practice that we see in Scripture. Now, many churches, many Congregationalist churches in particular, do have elders. Uh, they, many, many of my Congregationalist brothers and sisters the congregations are, are run by elders, not simply by the pastor. Uh, but this is very much what the church is trying to do when we establish these church structures, the church government. And so our confession in chapter 31 doesn't really address this issue. Is it Episcopal? Is it Congregational? Or... And from this word, apostles and elders, we get the word Presbyterian. Rule by elders. 
but rule by elders means more, or Presbyterian at least, means more than just rule by elders because Presbyterian congregations are also connectional. Uh, and, and so we see that. But if you'll notice, section 1 of chapter 31 For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils, and it belongs to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification, not for destruction, to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. Now, In there, many people, sidetrack here, many people think the confession is a Presbyterian document. It is not. The confession is not a Presbyterian document. It is Presbyterian because it was adopted by the Church of Scotland after the assembly. And the Church of Scotland is a Presbyterian church, and so... The confession has become associated with the Church of Scotland and with Presbyterianism. But the Westminster Assembly actually has three different groups of people there. They have a party which are called Erastians. And Erastianism is essentially Episcopalianism. Uh, the Erastian position is that God has appointed a civil magistrate and that civil magistrate is responsible to establish the true religion in the land. That's the Erastian position. So if we were Erastian, we would say that it is the responsibility of President Biden to determine who is the true church in the United States of America, and we are to go along with whatever President Biden or Congress or whatever. It needs to be enshrined in our law what the true church in the land is. That's the Erastian position. The Congregationalist position, you remember John Bunyan spent time in prison over this. (laughs) The Congregationalist position is, no, the government has no authority in the church, and so you had a lot of Congregationalists who would preach out in the fields and because they were not part of the established church, And then you had the Presbyterians, and the Presbyterians largely came down from Scotland. Uh, Many of the commissioners were Scottish, but there was always a Presbyterian movement within England itself. Uh, Christopher Love is is one of the great Presbyterians that actually Cromwell had executed. Uh, Cromwell, as a a Puritan, uh, saw, or as as a Congregationalist Puritan, anti-royalist, saw the Presbyterians as being way too friendly uh, to, to the crown, and so he saw Presbyterians in England as a, uh, as a problem and, and actually rooted them out. So Christopher Love was an English Presbyterian. My point in saying all that is to say you've got all three groups of people that are coming together to to put this document together that is what they believe Scripture teaches. And so on the one hand, you don't see a clear government. You don't see a, a clear order here. 
On the other hand, to be completely honest, the Scottish Presbyterians were the smartest guys in the room, and they had a lot of influence (laughs) in the assembly. And so when you read something like Section 1, it sounds an awful lot like a Presbyterian government. Uh, and, And that's because... They're, they're just pointing to the scriptures. Look, Acts 15 shows the church coming together, and this is not an individual matter. They don't appeal to Caesar or anybody else. Uh, they come together to address this issue, and when it is, is resolved, then the decision goes forth. And clearly, there is some sort of government here. Now, of historical interest... Um, I'll mention this, and then we'll start to wrap up. Uh, of historical interest, the original confession that is written in the 1700s states that ministers together with the civil magistrate may call for such assemblies. The confession that you've got in the back of your hymn book says ministers and other rulers can call for such assemblies. And so with the American revision of the confession, of the Westminster Confession, this this idea of the church and the state having a close relationship with each other becomes separated, becomes more separated. And so the American position, historically, it's called disestablishmentarianism. Uh, they unestablished the the idea of the church in the land. Now, the American uh, revision ends up changing a fair amount of material here in chapter 31. In chapter 31, we're explicitly told that it's ministers and the civil magistrate that can call for counsels, uh, in the American revision, we're told ministers and other rulers call for the church. In my opinion, that kind of elevates the ruling elder position a little bit more. Uh, it, it recognizes that there is a governing authority in the congregation, which is not strictly the minister. Uh, but there are ministers and there are other rulers. And then, obviously, the removing the entire language. So, so... What we did was we completely rewrote Section 2 uh, and renumbered the whole thing. But to, to circle back around to Chapter 31, it is appropriate at regular seasons for the church to come together to decide weighty matters. Now, what would be some weighty matters that might have impact beyond our one congregation? What would be some weighty matters that the church should gather together and discuss? Great. Whether or not to allow gay marriage. If Sterling Presbyterian Church says we should allow gay marriage... And Grace Presbyterian Church in Vienna says, nope, we should not allow gay marriage. Do we just, hey, you can be a member at Sterling, 
and we're okay with gay marriage and you can be a member at Grace and you can't have gay marriage? Or do we need to get together (laughs) and have a position on this? Which, ironically, I don't know if this was in the back of your mind, but the OPC has twice written a letter to the civil magistrate. One, the last one was in 2010, so that's what, 22 years ago? 12 years ago, whatever, much long time ago. Um, and it was in response, yeah, that's frightening. But that sounds so antiquated now to say that the OPC wrote a letter on gay marriage because we've moved so far beyond that, but it was only 12 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, but the Department of Defense requested that denominations that endorse chaplains uh, weigh in on whether or not the Department of Defense should allow homosexuals to serve in the military. And so because the OPC endorses chaplains, we have, we have OPC chaplains, we responded to that request from the Department of Defense. I believe Mark Rogers actually was one of the significant, uh, had, had significant input uh, into that into that document that we that we published in 2010. But yeah, those kinds of those kinds of doctrinal controversies. Another is simply who should be allowed to be a minister. Let's say I believe that uh, I don't know, let's see. What what am, what am I going to believe? Um, I believe in the eternal subordination of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, ESS is the short for the eternal subordinate sonship, I think, is the, is the, what the ESS stand for. Okay. So let's say (laughs) that I believe that Jesus is eternally subordinate to the Father. He is ontologically subordinate to the Father. You're right, I'm wrong. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) But, how are we going to determine that I am not allowed to say that at Sterling if we don't have the church, other ministers come together and say, whoa, wait a minute, that's over the line. You, you cannot teach that. You cannot hold that position. And so that, that's one of the things that we do. We, I mean, we call it examination of candidates. Uh, I'm running out. Okay, this really gets into section two. <laughs> so let me, let me make sure. Uh, we'll come back next week, Lord willing. No, no, we will not look at section two next week. We'll come back in future weeks and uh, look at section two. Next week, uh, for those who would like to come, and particularly um, thinking of families with young children, uh, I'm going to do a little historical vignette on St. Nicholas and uh, who the guy was and what he stood for and why he became such a big thing. Uh, it's also interesting, Charles Dickinson, Charles Dickens 
is uh, credited as the guy who invented Christmas. Uh, Christmas as we know it did not exist before Charles Dickens. So that's an interesting little side note. Um, but we'll, we'll stop there. Um, what I'm wanting to leave you with from this is that whether, whether you see church government as relevant or irrelevant, whether you see church government as, as a hill to die on or, or something that is, uh, adiaphora, that is, uh, indifferent, what I think everybody, J.C. Ryle, John Bunyan, and John Knox, what everybody is trying to do is to say, what do we see the practice in Scripture as? What is the closest we can be in practice to what we see in the Bible? And, and so that's where we come up with this particular form of government that, that we believe is the most closely uh, in, in harmony with the practice that we see in the New Testament. So with that, I will close. Uh, are there any questions, comments? And yes, I do not believe in the eternal subordination of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you're right. I should not be a minister if I do. <laughs> We've actually had that battle uh, in the OPC uh, over that. We've told, told a young man uh, within my memory that he could not be licensed, and it created quite a stir. Uh, but that is a line that we believe Scripture is very clear on. Okay, well, let me uh, close with prayer, and then we can go into our time of fellowship. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church and for the government that you have given to her. Uh, Lord, we pray that all human, all human structures are going to fail, and anytime humans get involved in it, we stumble and don't do it perfectly. But, Lord, would you preserve your church, preserve her, uh, through these structures that you have called her to walk according to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.